Hi everyone, Frank Narat here. I'm the sound designer and audio engineer for Tiny Tales. Today, we're having a replay of two sci-fi episodes, Kirk and Grufta. If you're new to the show and you enjoy what you hear, tell one friend about the show today. That's all we ask. That's a huge help. And if you're a longtime fan, tell two friends. Thanks so much for listening. Sunlight filtered through the dusty display window, glinting off seamless, polished metal. A silver oblong nestled in sun-faded velvet. The brilliance of the original crimson could still be seen on the back of the curtains framing the glass and in the grooves of the wrinkled fabric. There were indents where other shapes had sat, but all that remained was the elongated metal egg. What is it? A young face was pressed against the glass, fog gathering around her partially open mouth. There was no one to answer. She stood in a dingy street, surrounded by faded, peeling paint and warped wood. Her clothing was just as shabby. Patched knits with gaping holes clumsily knotted shut and boots too big for her feet. A few figures passed by, but none spared her a glance. She left the glass and pulled open the shop door. A bell above her gave a half-hearted jingle. Inside, the shelves were bare and dusty. The place seemed empty. And after a glance around, she moved to the window. She had to stand on tiptoe to see into the slanted, velvet-lined case. An inquisitive hand strayed over the edge, fingers straining toward the silver. Don't touch the merchandise. She yanked her hand back and whirled. An elderly man wearing a stained leather apron stood in the shadow of the nearest row of shelves. What is it? She asked, tucking her curious hands behind her back. Grufta. What? It's a grufta, he said, nodding toward the window. Oh. She rocked in her worn boots. A voice rang out in the street outside, then faded. What's a grufta? The man rubbed his chin with a grimy hand. Never heard of a grufta? She shook her head. He looked her over with an appraising eye before he bent down to her level. Knees creaking, dirty hands planted on his thighs. 
There used to be powers in this world, or so they say. Powers that could kill a man. Ten men, in an instant. Or flatten a city. Or carry you through the sky like a bird. Or tell your future. Powers you could hold in the palm of your hand. Her mouth hung open as she listened. One finger lifting to scratch her nose. The man in the apron straightened up. That's what a grufta is. Bit of that power left over. She turned and lifted up on tiptoe, levering herself with her arms to peer over the edge at it. The silver on its bed of velvet glowed slightly golden in the light of the setting sun. How's it work? She asked. It doesn't. It just sits there. Her fingers twitched, reaching for it again. No money, no grufta, he growled behind her. She shrank against the display case, nudging the floor with the toe of her boot. The man in the apron watched her trudge toward the door before he turned and disappeared into the murk of the shop. She pulled the door open. The bell jingled above her. Then the door begrudgingly closed again. But she hadn't moved. Instead, she crept behind the dusty velvet curtains, biting her lip and wrinkling her nose to hold back a sneeze. She peeped out from behind the red drapes. The shop was empty. The silver grufta lay just within her reach. A single, dirty finger reached out, brushing against the seamless metal. A brilliant light flashed, faded, and erupted again. Searing white rays flooded the shop. The man in the apron stumbled out of the back, hands raised to shield his eyes. The tattered girl was gone, replaced by a figure hovering in the window, white, and flickering against the brightness. The door flew open. The light flashed outside, darted down the street, and disappeared in a rainbow streak behind a dilapidated building. The door drifted shut with a soft jingle. In its bed of velvet, a dark crack had opened in the seamless metal side.
It was well after first moonset, when Kirk hauled himself onto the craggy plateau and looked down at the sleeping city. Boracy III was small. The smallest place in the multiverse, Kirk thought. And the more he'd grown, the smaller it had gotten. Now, from above, it looked like a metal pock on the face of the landscape. A few hours earlier, he had woken in a cold sweat after dreaming that the constricting walls had closed in and sealed him up like a can of Garvian mash. Most nights, he would have sighed mournfully into the dark, rolled over, and gone back to sleep. But not tonight. Kirk got up and snuck out past the mineral grinders and prism bays, to the base of the Borsinian walls. He shuffled his heels back against the cold metal, looked down at his feet, took a step, and started counting. Other Borsinians were milling around, the night shift. Kirk ignored them. He had as much distaste for the people as the place. Every year, their brains seemed to shrink until he wasn't sure anything filled their curly-horned heads. Borisy III was known for its prism shaping. Each of the bays Kirk passed, counting softly as he went, were mounted with several carefully sculpted prisms mined from beneath the city. When powered by lunar light, they sent whatever was inside the bay hurtling through the cosmos to the destination indicated by their alignment. This might sound like magic. It's not. It's highly scientific and explained in great detail in Regival's Prismatic Potency in Relation to Cosmic Disruption and Traversion. Magic is just science that isn't understood yet, and any Borsinian who heard mention of the arcane would think the speaker had been snorting too much prism dust. Cans of mash and metal crates packed with raw crystals were stacked up and dropped through the infinity of space to the strange locales across the multiverse that needed such things. Borisy III was a hub of comings and goings, but they hadn't yet solved the problem of space being very cold. Whatever was sent arrived frozen solid, and if handled improperly, crumbled into dust. If Kirk's dream did come true, at least he would be zapped off to an unknown destination pried open there and have one last grand adventure sliding down some foreign gullet. But it was just a dream. Flesh and fluids couldn't travel the way of the Garvian mash. When Kirk reached the opposite wall, he sighed and sagged. Every planetary cycle, he paced the diameter of the city to measure it. And as he suspected, 
Every year it had shrunk. If his brain was as remarkable as he fancied, he would have realized this was because every year his legs and feet had grown. However, it could be argued that the place did get relatively smaller since he took up more of it. Either way, the number he had totaled left him discontent. An idea was forming in his pubescent brain. And on that night, under the light of the first moon, he found the angst to execute it. He left Boar C3, with a filtration mask anchored to his horns, and climbed the surrounding rugged cliffs. When he reached the top, the second moon had risen, and the third glowed on the horizon. The prisms in the pack on his back clanked as he adjusted the straps. He intended to open a portal to the Forbidden Zone, and then, well, he hadn't thought that far ahead. But Forbidden with a capital F was a tempting thing indeed. Kirk crossed the plateau and crept into a small, dark cave. He drew a circle in the dust on the stone floor and set prisms at each focal point. Without the stability of a prism bay, he could only hope for a shaky and temporary portal, but it would be enough to peek through. The light of the third moon crept across the floor licking at the edges of the farthest prism. Kirk rearranged, realigned, reconfigured until a web of light stretched between the prisms, and they shook and danced in their places around the circle. The lunar light glowed refracted a thousand times onto and into and through itself. Then it flashed and disappeared. Kirk peered into the circle. It was dark. The third moon had moved on and only by squinting could he see that the circle was slightly darker than the darkness around it. In actuality, it couldn't be dark, because it was nothing. Not the nothingness people refer to when they mean the absence of something, but true nothingness. The absence of everything. The night was still and silent, and so was the puddle of nothing. Then a shift, and a slight change in color. The nothingness had become something. Something big, trying to crawl through. A mammoth foot appeared first, anchoring claws in the rock than the tips of two tufted ears. When the head squeezed through, 
Kirk thought there was no way the rest of it could follow, but it kept wriggling and writhing and twisting until another foot, and a long furry body, and two more feet, and finally a long tail slid through. The prisms scattered, and the portal snapped shut. The creature that had crawled out of nothingness shook itself, raining Kirk with ice crystals. It stretched its back and yawned, razor claws arching out of its paws. Then it sat up and curled its tail around its feet. But the cave was shorter than it was, so it had to hunch under the stone ceiling, and its head slid down between its massive shoulders. Unblinking yellow eyes stared at Kirk, who was standing welded to the floor. The creature's appearance had startled him. Until that moment, a living thing passing through a prism portal had seemed an impossibility. He probably should have run away screaming. He didn't. Anything might happen when dabbling with the forbidden and the cocktail of hormones in his brain granted him a certain crazed immunity to common sense. Salutations, he said nervously, quieter than he intended. The creature stared, one ear twitching as it brushed the rock ceiling. Its pupils dilated until the yellow eyes turned jet black. What are you? If you don't mind, Kirk asked, unsure the thing could talk and wondering if he was making a fool of himself. I am existence, the creature said promptly. The universe, the cosmos, the whole of life embodied, contained, turned in upon itself, where it is made whole and nothing, complete and separate, possible and impossible, yes and no. Oh, Kirk said. I suppose I'm here now, the creature said. So, if there's something you want, hurry up and say it. Infinity passes one moment at a time. I'd like to leave this place, Kirk said cheerfully. I'd like to go somewhere else. Where? Somewhere else? I suggest specificity, the creature said. I believe you organic organisms require certain conditions to survive. Kirk considered this. His knowledge of other places was limited. They were there, somewhere, and he wasn't. Well, where did you come from? The void, the creature said, casually flexing a paw. 
Is it nice there? The yellow eyes pinned him. It's a void. It's nothing. Oh. The creature sighed. Apparently, existence was impatient. What if I showed you the universe and you selected a place? Can you do that? It looked as if it wasn't sure he could, but Kirk nodded eagerly. The creature lay so that Kirk stood between its massive front paws and opened its mouth. There were no teeth or tongues or throat, just a warm breeze from a dark, empty cave. Something flickered deep within. A light, a flare, the expansion of nothingness into everything. Novas imploding and exploding, stars flaming and dying. The crash of cosmic waves against strange, ethereal shores. Planets of every shape and size wheeling through the endless dance. Some clamoring with life, others wastelands of dust and raging storms. Life surging to its peak and falling into decay. tear ran down Kirk's cheek. His eyes stung, but he couldn't blink, couldn't look away from the horror and beauty. The creature's mouth stretched into a cavernous yawn, then shut. See anything you like? But Kirk was already scribbling, scrambling down the rocky mountainside. He only stopped when he'd pounded back inside the metal walls and leaned his hands on his knees to catch his breath. He had only seen glimpses of other worlds through the holes the prisms made. In his mind, the whole of the multiverse couldn't be that much bigger than Boris E3. Maybe a little, but not by much. He bent over and panted and thought about throwing up. It was a rude shock to go from being a relatively large person in a relatively small space to a tiny, insignificant speck. He straightened up and patted the stiff metal wall next to him. At third moonrise... Kirk would have said those unforgiving boundaries kept him in. As the third moon set and he crawled back into bed, he knew they were keeping the rest of the world out. Boris E3 eventually solved the cold problem. But when given the chance to leave his metal cocoon, Kirk stubbornly shook his head and said he was fine where he was. The bigger his world became, the smaller it made him. 
so he kept his world small. He never saw the magenta shores of Rissian Four shining with the spume of green waves, or the endless Torfa fields of Yurian Two. He never knew the thrill and terror of stepping from one world to another and glimpsing infinity in between. He lived hemmed in by walls, walls he wouldn't look past for fear of seeing two black eyes of nothingness staring back at him. He did become the finest prism shaper in Boris C3, so that's something. Today's episode of Tiny Tales was written and narrated by R.E. Rule. Music and production by Frank Narat. If you enjoy our show, don't forget to rate and subscribe. Join us on Patreon for as little as $1 per month to gain exclusive access to the Tiny Tales soundtracks. Visit us at tinytalespodcast.com for details. Thanks for listening.